If you're an athlete, can you fuel your intensity with fat? Here's what the evidence says. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? science, clear explanations. Class is starting now. Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are now in our 18th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. This week, we're talking about the question of whether you can fuel athletic performance with Fat. In the last lesson, we looked at the principles, and today we're going to take a look at the evidence. We're not going to look at all the evidence in a comprehensive manner. That would not be possible in a video of this length. What we're going to do is select out the key pieces of evidence, either because they're popularly used in these debates or because they provide key pieces of information that are important to help us understand this question. And I'm doing the best that I can to present this in an objective manner without leaving out any key pieces of information that might change our viewpoint. Shown on the screen is an example of one of the many studies where we've looked at what is the proportion of fuel that you typically use during different types of exercise? And this is not going to provide key evidence on whether you can fat adapt your workout, but it provides a baseline of what our state of knowledge has been up until the point where we started studying the different types of adaptations you could have on a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. In this study, they took five endurance-trained cyclists and they first determined their VO2 max. The VO2 max is the maximum amount of oxygen that an individual can use during exercise. And this allows them to then use subsequent exercise protocols based on that individual's maximum oxygen consumption. So once they determined their VO2 max, they gave them three exercise protocols. One was 30 minutes at 85% of the VO2 max. One was 120 minutes at 65% of the VO2 max. And the third was 120 minutes at 25% of the VO2 max. So we have high intensity for a short duration, and we have medium and low intensity for a longer duration. You simply can't maintain really high intensity for 120 minutes. And that's why the high intensity protocol is much shorter, a half an hour instead of two hours. All of the subjects underwent all exercises, exercise trials, one per day on three consecutive days, but in random order. That randomization is really helpful because it makes sure that if there's an, some effect of time that we don't know about, or some effect of, of the order, for example, maybe you're depleted in glycogen if you do the high intensity first and it affects your impact how it impacts your medium intensity on the next time you go in or something like that. 
the randomization helps us account for any of those unknown variables. The subjects consumed three to 400 grams of carbohydrate per day, and that was to protect them from any kind of glycogen depletion. And it was based on what they expected to be twice the amount of glycogen that they might be using during the exercise. What they found in this study was that if your exercise is light, you're burning almost exclusively fat in the muscle. But as you get higher in intensity, you become more and more dependent on carbohydrate. So you can see in this figure, plasma glucose is shown in black. Plasma glucose makes a very minor contribution under all intensities, but as you go up intensity, the relative increase in plasma glucose is rather large. For example, at high intensity, the plasma glucose looks like it's about four times what it was at low intensity, but it's still a very minor proportion of the overall energy expenditure. Plasma-free fatty acids are shown with the dashed lines. Plasma-free fatty acids are the vast majority of what you're burning in the muscle at low intensity. And as you get higher in intensity, their contribution declines. The muscle triglycerides are shown in white. There's only a sliver of muscular triglycerides that are used at low intensity. The largest contribution of muscular triglycerides is actually at medium intensity, and then it declines again at high intensity. Glycogen is distinct because it's not used at all at low intensity. At medium intensity, it makes a modest contribution. And then at high intensity, muscle glycogen is the overwhelming contributor. It's clearly contributing to at least half, probably close to two-thirds of the total energy. If you take the sum of free fatty acids plus triglycerides, and you take the sum of plasma glucose, plasma glucose plus muscular glycogen, then clearly at low intensity, you're overwhelmingly burning fat, almost exclusively. At high intensity, add the black to the glycogen at the top, and your vast majority of energy expenditure is in carbohydrate. At medium intensity, you're somewhere in the middle. You can see that the triglycerides plus the free fatty acids versus the plasma glucose plus the muscular glycogen is about half and half. Now, if you take the low intensity or the high intensity, the longer you go for, the more dependent you are on fat versus glycogen. Now, there was no two-hour exercise protocol for high intensity. So what they show here instead is over the course of two hours at low intensity on the left and at high, in, excuse me, medium intensity on the right. And so what you see is that overwhelmingly throughout all of low intensity, you're burning fat. At medium intensity, you can see that muscular glycogen starts off quite large, and then its proportion declines over time. As muscular glycogen declines, plasma glucose rises, and plasma-free fatty acids also rise. Muscular triglycerides also start higher and dip off 
towards the end. Well, why would this be? It really follows straightforwardly from what we've talked about in the last lesson when we talked about the principles. Fat takes a long while to burn, but it can go on and on and on because you have so much. It's slow burning, lasts a long time, but you have tons of it. By contrast, muscular glycogen is really, really fast, but you don't have that much of it. And so at low intensity, why not burn fat forever? You never need to be fast at low intensity. At medium intensity, you can start tapping into the muscular triglycerides. It seems to be difficult to access them at high intensity, but they're there in close proximity, so they're useful. But they'll run out over time. Muscular glycogen, really rapid supply of carbohydrate. It's right there, but it runs out over time, and that forces you to become more reliant on free fatty acids and plasma glucose. But free fatty acids and plasma glucose aren't your preferred substrates when you're exercising at high intensity because both of those things need to travel to the muscle from the liver where the glucose is being released into the blood or from the adipose tissue where free fatty acids are being released into the blood. So a study like this tells us nothing about whether you can fat adapt that exercise. In other words, these subjects were using three to 400 grams of carbohydrate per day. Wouldn't some of these things change if someone's on a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet? Of course. Nevertheless, it's still useful because it points out what is an interesting question and what's not. For example, it should be expected that a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet is not going to do any kind of devastating damage to low-intensity exercise because low-intensity exercise is burning overwhelmingly fat even in someone eating three to 400 grams of carbohydrate per day. And it becomes clear that it, that it is a progressively more interesting question to ask, do you need carbohydrate to fuel peak intensity because it's as you approach peak intensity that your fuel becomes more and more carbohydrate-based. So let's look at some studies where they've asked the question, what happens when you fat adapt this exercise? Stephen Finney asked this question in a paper published in 1983. This was not randomized, it was a linear protocol where five well-trained cyclists were given a mixed diet for one week, and then they had a muscle biopsy and an endurance test. Then they were fed a ketogenic diet for four weeks, and they also had a muscle biopsy and an endurance test. So here we're looking at four weeks on a ketogenic diet, endurance, and glycogen storage before and after. In the endurance test, they were cycling at 60 to 65% VO2 max until they could no longer pedal at 60 revolutions per minute. Their mixed diet was 1.7 grams protein per kilogram of their ideal body weight, with the non-protein calories split two-thirds carbohydrate, one-third fat. The ketogenic diet was matched for calories and protein but it had less than 20 grams per day of carbohydrate, 
and it got 83 to 85% of its total calories as fat. We can conclude from Finney's study that ketogenic diets do not hurt your endurance at 60 to 65% VO2 max. Remember that in the earlier study, we saw that the fat versus carbohydrate was mixed half and half in people eating a diet that was providing three to 400 grams of carbohydrate per day. So if even on a high carb diet, at this level of intensity, you're burning half and half carbohydrate versus fat, then it's not that surprising that on a high fat diet, you could run pretty well. Even still, we should note that what they're showing here is that when the cyclist pedaled until they no longer could pedal 60 revolutions per minute and they gave up, there was no difference between the two groups. That's not necessarily saying the same thing that at a moderate intensity they would win a race, for example. So the Finney 1983 study does tell us that endurance in this context isn't hurt by a ketogenic diet, but it's not really getting at the heart of the most interesting question, which is how does this impact your intensity, your speed, your ability to beat someone else in any given context, which is important for competitive athletes. The Finney study also showed that the ketogenic diet depleted muscular glycogen to a very large degree. You can see on the mixed diet, before exercise, they had almost 150 grams of glycogen per kilogram of muscle. This decreased about to a third, 50 grams per kilogram of muscle. On the ketogenic diet, they were at about less than 75 grams, and that decreased to about the same post-exercise level. So on the one hand, the ketogenic diet did deplete muscular glycogen. On the other hand, it allowed the cyclists to adapt in a way that they didn't use as much glycogen during exercise. Still, that brings us back to the point, if they have less glycogen, then they're not able to tap in to the speed that glycogen supplies. So if this were a test of speed instead of a test of endurance, then that depleted glycogen probably would have hurt speed. More recently, Jeff Volek conducted an observational study of fat-adapted endurance athletes that was published in 2016. This was not an intervention. They didn't change anyone's diet but it allowed them to look at the effect of the diets over a longer period of time. They took 20 male ultra-endurance runners aged 21 to 45 who had chosen outside of the study to consume either a low-carb diet or a high-carb diet for at least six months. That's a lot longer than the Finney 1983 study where they only ate the ketogenic diet for four weeks. What they did was At the beginning of the study, they took their body composition, they took muscle biopsies, blood draws, and metabolic data. They gave them a shake that reflected the diet that they had already chosen for themselves. 
It was either high in carbohydrate or low in carbohydrate, with the macronutrient ratios shown on the screen. Then they had them run on a three-hour treadmill run at 65% VO2 max. Then they took this shake again and recovered for two hours. The biopsies and the blood and the metabolic data were taken immediately after the exercise as well as after the two-hour recovery period. Once again, we're looking at medium-intensity exercise, which, based on what we already knew before we asked the question of whether it can be fat-adapted, would appear to be the exercise that would be most flexible between running on carbohydrate versus fat. The Volek 2016 study shows that if you're fat-adapted, you burn more fat when you exercise. When you're carb-adapted, you burn more carbs. That shouldn't be terribly surprising, but it's interesting to have the quantitative data. So you can see in the left panel, we're looking at fat oxidation. The triangles are the high-carb the high carb endurance athletes, and the diamonds are the low-carb endurance athletes. You can see that fat oxidation was much higher during exercise in the low-carb athletes versus the high-carb athletes. On the right, you see the opposite. So the diamonds are the low-carbers, the triangles are the high-carbers, and we're looking at carbohydrate oxidation. Carbohydrate oxidation was much higher in the high-carbers during exercise than in the low-carbers. The Volek 2016 study was not a study of performance, so it doesn't tell us anything about how well these people performed on one diet or another. But it's nevertheless quite interesting, particularly in what it showed about muscle glycogen. Shown on the screen is muscle glycogen between the high-carbers in black and the low-carbers in gray before the treadmill run, immediately after the treadmill run, and then after the two-hour recovery period. What it shows is that glycogen was identical between the two groups of athletes before exercise, immediately after exercise, and immediately after recovery. There's two really interesting things about this data, apart from the fact that it conflicts with the Finney 1983 data. But in its own right, there's two really interesting things. First of all, the low-carb diet didn't compromise muscular glycogen levels. Second of all, the low-carbers used just as much glycogen during exercise as the high-carbers did. If they're so fat-adapted, why are they equally dependent on muscular glycogen for this kind of exercise? Well, first let's tackle why the muscular glycogen wasn't affected by the diet. This is in direct contrast to what Finney showed in 1983. And there are some obvious differences in the diet that could account for it. So for example, look at the amount of carbohydrate that the low carbers were eating. 82 grams of carbohydrate per day versus less than 20 grams of carbohydrate per day in Finney 1983. Also, look at the protein. 2.1 grams protein per kilogram body weight is greater than what the high carbers were eating, and it's also about 20% more protein per kilogram body weight than what the low carbers were eating in Finney 1983. 
So the big reason that this diet didn't tap into glycogen in the same way that the Finney 1983 diet did was because there's four times more carbs. The little reason is that there's 20% more protein. And that protein is going to provide protein for gluconeogenesis or to replace the tax on carbohydrate for anaplerosis, as we've discussed in the previous lessons. The authors of the Volek 2016 paper wrote a really interesting paragraph speculating on why the use of glycogen was just as high in the low carbers as in the high carbers. And a lot of this paragraph relates directly to the lessons that we've covered in this series. So I'm gonna read a part of the paragraph that relates. A provocative finding was that low-carb athletes appeared to break down substantially more glycogen than the total amount of carbohydrate oxidized during the three-hour run. This was the case in all 10 low-carb athletes. Why would athletes with high rates of acetyl-CoA generation from fatty acids bother breaking down muscle glycogen if those carbons are not terminally oxidized? Although speculative, we believe the reason may be to provide a source of glucose for the pentose phosphate pathway and a source of pyruvate to form oxaloacetate. Since we haven't covered the pentose phosphate pathway in these lessons yet, I'm going to skip over their comments on that pathway, and I'm gonna hone in on their comments about oxaloacetate and pyruvate, which is a topic we've already covered just recently. They go on, Pyruvate may be necessary in a keto-adapted athlete for two reasons. First, pyruvate can be used as an anaplerotic substrate by pyruvate carboxylase to generate oxaloacetate. Anaplerosis, that's lesson 16. Thus, in the keto-adapted athlete, glycogen breakdown may be necessary to ensure a constant source of oxaloacetate for optimal TCA functioning. Second, pyruvate can be converted to lactate or alanine in muscle, which may then serve as gluconeogenic substrate for the liver. Conversion to lactate, we covered in lesson 15. Now, if we go back to lesson 15, we see that the main reason to make lactate isn't to make glucose in the liver. In fact, that's very circular reasoning. You wouldn't say that you're breaking down glucose so that you can make lactate to make glucose in the liver. That's the Cori cycle. The reason it operates isn't to provide lactate or to provide glucose, it's to allow you to continue making lactate because the process of making lactate allows you to continue running glycolysis as a source of ATP. So the fact that you can convert pyruvate to lactate is probably what you're really doing in this context because part of your intensity is gonna be driven by anaerobic glycolysis because it takes time to get aerobic. And as we looked at in the last lesson, you never get 100% aerobic. And if you're operating at medium intensity, there's probably some obligate requirement for glucose to run anaerobic glycolysis. Now, if we compare the Volek 2016 paper to the Finney 1983 paper, we see that the Finney 1983 paper had a very similar intensity. It was for about 
two hours in most of the subjects rather than a three-hour treadmill run. So it's a little bit different. But in that paper, there was a remarkable decrease not only in muscular glycogen, but in the amount of glycogen used during that exercise. So it appears that whatever glycogen is being utilized for in the Volex study is to some degree fat adaptable because whatever that need is was spared in the Finney 1983 study. But in the Finney 1983 study, it would appear that the body, the bodies of those cyclists spared it because they had to, because their carbohydrate load was reduced four times more, was cut to four times less than what was in the carbohydrate load in the Volex study. So the real question then is not whether you can get away with using less glycogen. It's that if you're forced into not using your glycogen in a context like that, what happens to your performance when you need to hit high intensity? Paoli studied the effect of a ketogenic diet on performance in eight male artistic gymnasts published in 2012. In this study, unlike the Volek 2016 study, it was an intervention. But like the Finney 1983 study, it was not randomized, which means that there could be an effect of time or an effect of the order of the diets that were not taking into account. They put the, very, they put the athletes on a very low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet for 30 days and took performance tests and anthropometric measurements before and after the diet. Then they waited three months, and they did the same thing with 30 days of a Western diet. Presumably, the three months in between will help prevent one diet from affecting the other. Nevertheless, it would have been ideal to randomize the order of the diets to protect against things like time or order. An example of a time effect would be seasonality. Let's say that you do the low-carb diet in the winter and you do the high-carb diet in the summer. Well, seasonality can affect that. Vitamin D is different. Sun exposure is different. Mood can be different. Physical activity outdoors and what you're doing with your time can be different, and so on. Or let's say one diet causes weight loss and then regaining. Does that affect metabolism in some way? Nevertheless, let's look at what they found. When the athletes were on their low-carb diet, they were consuming 22 grams of carbohydrate per day. That's a lot closer to the Finney 1983 study than to the Volek 2016 study. When they were low-carb, they were eating over 200 grams of protein per day. That's a lot of protein for a ketogenic diet. It's two and a half times as much protein as they were consuming when they were on a high-carb diet. And 83.5 grams of protein is a lot less than the typical athlete who's concerned about strength and performance is gonna eat. So the, lop, the protein is pretty lopsided in this study. Now, protein at 201 grams per day is gonna be a source of glucose. That protein is gonna be a source of anaplerosis. Since inadequate anaplerosis in the liver is what actually drives ketogenesis, it's not actually clear how ketogenic they are because protein at that level should suppress ketogenesis at least a little bit. 
and ketones weren't measured in this study. Although the calories are in the, excuse me, although the energy is not in the units of calories, but is in the units of kilojoules on the bottom, which is less familiar to us, if we take the energy from the low-carb and divide it by the energy on the high-carb diet, we'll see that when the athletes were eating low-carb, they were eating 13% fewer calories. Maybe you can guess, but we're going to see why that's important in a couple slides. When the athletes were low-carb, they had special access to extracts of dozens of herbs that are listed here. These herbs were only used on the very low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet. They were used for indigestion as an antioxidant to increase bile secretion to help fat digestion, for hormonal effects, for blood sugar control, to aid in weight loss, as a diuretic, for glycemic control, and to ameliorate the commonly reported symptoms of weakness and tiredness during the first phase of ketosis, the first one to two weeks. So we should keep in mind that while they were low carb, they were not only eating two and a half times as much protein, but they also had special access to what I'll loosely call performance enhancing herbs. The data that they took is shown on the screen. At the top, we see performance variables, and these are all body weight exercises. The squat jump and the counter movement jump are testing your ability to jump. The reverse grip chin-ups, the push-ups, legs closed barrier, which is bringing your, hang from the bar and bringing your legs up to the bar. The parallel bar dips, which is being on top of the bar and pushing yourself up from the bar. These are all body weight exercises. One thing that's notable here is that the statistical significance markings, which are asterisks, are not found in the performance variables at all. The title of the paper is that a ketogenic diet does not impact performance in these gymnasts. But neither does training then, because from the start to the end of 30 days of training on either diet, also did not statistically significantly improve performance. This is a bit disconcerting because it means one of three things. Either the study wasn't long enough to detect performance gains in athletes at this level, or the training wasn't good enough to produce performance gains in athletes at this level, or a study of eight gymnasts is too small to give you the statistical power that you need to see realistic performance gains over 30 days in this population. But if any of those are true, how can we use this study to say that there's no effect of the ketogenic diet on the performance? If there's no effect of the ketogenic diet on performance on the basis of this study, then neither is there any effective training on performance based on the results in this study. So do we conclude that athletes should feel free to use training and not training as equally valid ways of improving their performance? It gets a little bit worse than that because 
the 13% fewer calories consumed on the possibly, perhaps, ketogenic diet predictably led to weight loss. They, their body fat percentage went from 7.6 to 5%. Their weight went from 69.6 to 68 kilograms. That's about three and a half pounds of weight loss. Even if they had no performance gains from 30 days of training, the fact that they're pushing around less weight in body weight exercises should make their numbers go up because they're doing less work. And that should increase the ability to detect the performance gains and we don't see them. We see random movement in these where some numbers get a little bit smaller, some numbers get a little bit bigger, and nothing statistically significant. So what we conclude from this is that a high protein, possibly ketogenic diet, perhaps, with lots of herbal performance enhancers might not hurt performance if you ignore the effect of weight loss on the difficulty of body weight exercises. But if we're gonna use this study to conclude that, we should also conclude that not training at all might be just as good as training for, for performance gains. We should draw attention to one last note. Take a look at the push-ups. When they're doing 36, 38, 43 push-ups, that's probably out of all of these, the exercise where they're going the longest into depleting their creatine supply and needing to rely to some degree on anaerobic glycolysis. You see the push-up gains go from 36 to 38.8 on the low-carb diet and from 37 to 43.5 on the high-carb diet. So their push-up gains were six and a half on the high-carb diet and 2.8 on the low-carb diet. So this study was statistically too underpowered to tell us that a doubling of performance gains on push-ups was statistically significant. Again, we really can't conclude much from a study that doesn't have the power to detect a doubling of performance gains on a particular diet. Even more recently, Jacob Wilson and colleagues studied the impact of a ketogenic diet on resistance training outcomes, and this was just published. In this paper, they took 25 resistance-trained males and they randomized, out of all of these studies, the one randomized controlled trial, they randomized them to either a ketogenic diet or a Western diet. The diets were approximately matched for calories, approximately matched for protein, and the main difference was that in the ketogenic diet, they consumed 31 grams of carbs, and in the Western diet, they consumed 315 grams of carbs. 31 grams of carbs is very similar to Finney 1983 and to the Paoli study, very much lower than the Volek 2016 study. Then they went 10 weeks of training, and then in the 11th week, they all went on the same diet. So everyone went on the Western diet in the 11th week, which is mainly a difference for the ketogenic dieters who went from their 10, the, the ketogenic diet for 10 weeks 
to the regular diet in the last week. In this paper, they used the one rep max on the bench press and the squat as an indicator of power. They all also used a Wingate power test, which is all-out cycling. In this case, it was all-out cycling for 10 seconds. They also measured total mass and muscle thickness, and of course, a lot of data that I'm not showing on the screen. If we look at total mass, there was no statistically significant difference across any of the diets, but their muscle thickness increased in both groups to a relatively similar extent. So that suggests that the ketogenic diet over the course of 10 weeks is not gonna hurt your gains in muscle thickness from a bodybuilding perspective. Now, the strength on the one rep maxes were not hurt either. So you can see that these asterisks mean that at week 10, the strength was different than at week zero. And so you can see in the ketogenic diet, the bench press one rep max goes from 252.7 to 261.2. And in the Western diet, it goes from 248.8 to 263.3. You can see that a dollar sign means significantly different between groups, and there are no dollar signs on any of these variables. So there was no difference between one group and the other, but they both made respectable gains on their one rep maxes for the bench press. Similar results can be seen for the squat, which went from 287 to 303, or from 271 to 298. The Wingate power test was different. In the Western diet, the high carbohydrate diet, they made a statistically significant gain in their Wingate power, meaning their all out 10 second cycling, and they did not make a statistically significant gain in the ketogenic diet. In fact, if you look at week zero on the ketogenic diet and week 10 on the ketogenic diet, the Wingate power test actually goes down a little bit, although it's not statistically significant. Although there's no statistical significance between the two groups, still, the the power on the Wingate test is eight to 9% higher on the Western diet than the ketogenic diet and on the Western diet after the 10 weeks versus before the 10 weeks. No matter how you look at that, the Western diet, the high carbohydrate diet looks better for the Wingate test. Now, to put an interesting spin on this, look at after the ketogenic dieters go one week on a high-carbohydrate diet. Here, there's a sudden jump of 14 pounds on the bench press in the ketogenic group and of 12 pounds on the squat in the ketogenic group, much larger than any similar gains seen in the Western diet, for example, 263 to 265. And furthermore, even the Wingate test remarkably improves in just that one week all of the progress that was made on the high-carbohydrate diet to the point where the Wingate power test is quite similar between the two groups. So perhaps this is an argument for 
extreme low in the sense that maybe the positive adaptations of the ketogenic diet allowed them to carbo-load and then perform well once they were carbo-loaded. So perhaps there's a place for training cyclically on a ketogenic diet, and this is hinting at that. Either way, the Wingate power test is clearly more vulnerable to, the keto to negative effects from the ketogenic diet than the 1RM on the bench press or squat. So let's briefly consider why. As we noted in the previous lesson, there's some degree of time at which you can get very high intensity on the phosphagen system alone. After it's depleted is where time pushes you in the, into the need for anaerobic glycolysis for high intensity. So on a one rep max, you're only doing one rep. It doesn't take that long to do one rep. And so you're likely operating in the place where you can get by for maximal power on the phosphagen system alone. But 10 seconds of all-out cycling may push you into the temporal lactic requirement. That point where after five seconds or so, you still have phosphagen system, but it's being maintained there because anaerobic glycolysis is supporting it. And if you don't have the ability to tap into that anaerobic glycolysis as well, then that's gonna potentially hurt your performance. And the Wingate power test heading in 10 seconds is probably not into the heart of the temporal lactic requirement, but it's potentially moving into that zone. Also this year, Burke and colleagues studied the effect of a low-carb, high-fat diet on race walking. And in this study, they took 21 world-class or highly trained race walkers, and they didn't allocate them randomly. The only study that did that was the Wilson study that we just looked at. What they did was they educated them about the dietary approaches, asked them for their preferences, and then took into account their preferences, tried to give them the diet that could account for their preference as long as they could also match for age, body mass, aerobic capacity, and performance. They put them on one of three diets, a low-carb, high-fat diet, a high-carb diet, or a periodized diet, which I'll explain in more detail momentarily but it's a mix of high-carb, low-carb, and fasting. They had them do a 10-kilometer race before and after the three-week dietary treatment. During those three weeks, it wasn't just a dietary change. They had intensified training involving race walking, resistance training, and cross-training. The cross-training included running, cycling, and swimming. If you look at the diets, all the diets were approximately matched for protein at 144, 138, or 144 grams of protein per day. The diets were approximately matched for calories. Kilojoules per kilogram body weight is unfamiliar terms, but just look at the numbers. 223, 231, 226, all approximately the same. The main difference was in the carbs and fat. In the low-carb, high-fat diet, they only had 33 grams of carbs per day. Again, way lower than the Volek 2016 study, but in line with the other studies that have, that have followed Finney 1983 and the degree of carbohydrate restriction. 
The high-fat dieters were eating 312 grams of fat per day. This was totally flipped around in the high-carb, 549 grams of carbs per day, 77 grams of fat. In the periodized group, they had very similar carbs and fat to the high-carb group, but it was spaced within and between days differently around their training schedule. And it was really the training schedule that was the centerpiece of this. So the training was a combination of sometimes fasted training, sometimes glycogen-depleted low-carbohydrate training, sometimes high-carbohydrate training, occasionally even a low-sleep training. And when they put their carbs was based around that training schedule. By contrast, the low-carb, high-fat diet ate low-carb, high-fat consistently through the study, around the training periods, during the testing periods, and the high-carb diet did the same thing, high-carb all the time, during the workouts, before the workouts, post the workouts, high-carb all the time. The 10-kilometer race was sanctioned by the International Association of Athletics Federation, all the rules that you get in a competitive 10-kilometer race. And they did that before and after the treatment. And as an incentive, they took the sum of the two race times and combined it to their personal best 20 km. And then they gave cash prizes according to how well they were able to beat their personal best. So there was strong incentive to actually do their best. And I think that's a strength of this study because it ensures that there was motivation for peak performance. And what we really wanna see in these studies is, does the carb make a difference at that level of trying to extract that last marginal bit of performance that can give you the competitive edge? What we see in this study is that performance gains were best on a high-carb diet and worst on the low-carb diet. And this is interesting because the Wilson study suggested that maybe train low, then carbo-load for your power test would be a good technique. But here, the periodized group did something like that, and the high-carb diet still outperformed them. So you can see that their racing speed was 190 seconds faster on high carb, 124 seconds faster on periodized, and 23 seconds slower on low carb. So in the context of race walking, even cash money wasn't enough to get the low carbers to perform even a little bit better than the first time around, despite three weeks of intensified training. Now, this review hasn't been about all of the relevant studies. It's just the key ones that seem to potentially move the needle in how we would view this. I went into depth about a study published last year on whether you should do CrossFit on a ketogenic diet. If you want to see that study, check out the Mastering Nutrition podcast at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash 21. Now, we have one more really big thing to look at. But before we do that, let's sum up what we can say. What we really wanna know is whether carbohydrates give you better peak intensity to give you a competitive edge during high intensity. What we can see from these studies is that 
Low-carb diets, even ketogenic diets, probably don't hurt your endurance in almost any context. But they probably do hurt your competitive racing speed, even when you're after cash money. And they probably do hurt your performance on an all-out 10-second cycling test. This is really important because in the world of competitive sports, where this is going to be most relevant, what you're after most of the time is the peak power in an instant. Take the case of basketball, where you don't win based on your ability to keep slowly dribbling the longest. You win based on your ability to outpower someone by acting a fraction of a second faster when you're the one who's gonna block the ball or steal the ball and reverse the direction on the court. For that reason, the case of the LA Lakers is interesting to consider. The Lakers went low carb in 2013. Ken Berger, writing for CBSSports.com, wrote, the Lakers program is called Pro Nutrition which somewhat obtusely stands for performance, recovery, and orthogenesis, the latter being the theory that evolution is strongly influenced by environmental factors such as diet. It seems extreme because it has basically turned the government's sacred food pyramid upside down. Shanahan, Kate Shanahan, the director, wants the players to get at least 50% of their calories from fat and no more than 25% each from protein and carbohydrates. Wait, what? That's right, basically the opposite of what you and everyone else alive has been doing for years. Well, the food pyramid isn't the only thing that the Lakers turned upside down in 2013. Plotted on the screen is the entire history of the Lakers' percent wins since the 1948 to 1949 season. I've arbitrarily drawn a line at 40% of games won with the dashed blue line. Notably, they rarely in their history have ever fallen under 40% of games won per season. They did once in the 1956-57 and again in 58-59 and again in 74-75. But throughout almost the entire history, with one other exception here where they sank to exactly 40%, they stayed above the 40% mark, often peaking at various times at 80%. At no point until 2013 did they ever sink below 40% for two years in a row. But in 2013, when they went on their low-carbohydrate diet, they sank below 40% for the first time since the 1970s. They then went under even lower the year after that for the first time in their history since 1948, having less than 40% of games won two years in a row. The year after that, they had fewer percent wins 
And then in this last 2016 to 2017, wins increased, but they still haven't recuperated what they lost in the 2013 season. Now, correlation doesn't mean causation. And I understand there's other factors that could cause the percent wins of the Lakers to change. But you would still absolutely predict from everything known about physiology that in a game like basketball, where you win based on, yes, skill, which I admittedly have none of, but which you win based on skill plus your ability to reach high intensities in critical moments when it matters, when yes, you have a lot of downtime, but never enough to fully recover your phosphagen supply, you're gonna be pushed into a lot of anaerobic glycolysis. And if the dietary philosophy that you have is based on a maximum consumption of carbohydrate rather than a minimum, then of course, you can control for skill, and if you lose peak intensity, you're gonna start winning fewer games. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you wanna keep watching these lessons, you can watch them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn, or on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn, or you can sign up for MWM Pro. There, you'll get early access to content, keyword searchable database of the lessons, keyword searchable videos, downloadable audio, downloadable transcripts, PDF or web page transcripts with hyperlinks to the further reading material, making a world of knowledge easily accessible right at your fingertips, and a community with a form for each lesson where you can ask questions of each other, and I can occasionally pop in and answer some questions for you. So if you really wanna own the lessons, study them, really geek out and get the most out of them, really know this stuff, sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash pro. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.